Yeah, we're going to talk about humility today. And of course, we're going to talk about humility. We're also going to talk about pride. That's a that's actually a song title. Uh, it's a song from my youth, and uh, <laughs> but uh, when I can, I like to go to the songs to get the t- the sermon titles. Uh, here's a quote from Ben Franklin. You may have heard this before. I bet you've heard the end of it. In reality, there's perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive, and will every now and then peep out and show itself. For even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. And I think that's, you know, Ben Franklin had a way of putting things, and I think he's right. The problems with pride, really a couple problems with them. One is, prideful people tend to trust in their own abilities rather than God. And then the second thing, and this is the one that you'll see more, more manifest in their daily walk, we tend to treat others with contempt and disrespect. And in order to treat people that way, I've got to have a certain feeling about myself that's, that's not appropriate. Um, and the problem with the message on pride and humility is the wrong people are likely intensely focused right now. And because and there's, you know, it's a humble act to say, oh, I need to learn from this. You know, I'm going to learn something here today. And then the flip side of that is the wrong people are starting to tune out now. Oh, I got that down. I covered that a couple years ago. Um, or, or worse yet, I'm really glad he's speaking on pride. I know some people that need to hear about that. Uh, and that's, that's fairly common, right? So yeah, it's prideful to say, you know, I'm glad I don't have that problem. And it's a humble thing to say, what can I learn from this? Um, we oftentimes, I think, have this misconception that humility is just one of those spiritual disciplines that has no payoff. That's just like, I want to be more Christ-like, so I'm going to bite the bullet and act in a humble way because it's what Jesus did. But the truth of it is there are substantial benefits here and now for, for, a walk in, uh, for walking in humility. First of all, it helps your relationships. Uh, prideful people tend to, to, to have, have negative fallout in, in their marriages and their uh, families and their work relationships and their church relationships. Your relationships run smoother uh, when you walk with humility. Contentment goes up as humility goes up. Um, and, and, and pride, I think, breeds discontentment. And in fact, it's, it seems kind of easy and logical, but I think easy, uh, fairly easy to overlook. There's something in me that's prideful when I'm discontented. It, it, something in me that says, you know, I deserve better than this. Evidently, you don't know who I am, <laughs> that you would treat me this way. And there's a, a prideful thing that, uh, that allows us to walk in discontentment as if we somehow aren't getting our due or don't get, aren't getting as good a treatment as we deserve. Humility makes us more teachable, more coachable. It actually will help us with our own self-improvement projects because, uh, you know, if we're really prideful, we don't really see much room for improvement, and we're going to tend to stagnate spiritually and in other ways. So uh, we're going to look at a parable that Jesus taught on humility and, and, and pride, the flip side. And this is the second to last. This is the 11th parable message out of 12, and we'll finish it next week, then we'll do the graduates, and then, um, then we're going to start up with another series, uh, uh, probably in June. I, um, by the way, I don't, I don't exactly take requests, but I sure listen to requests, and so if you have an idea of something you'd like to hear a series on, let me know. I'm thinking of a series, a very short series on toxic relationships, family, work, and church. I'm thinking about uh, uh, a series on the book of Esther, 
and uh, had a request at the first service for a series on the a verse by verse on John, which would be kind of exciting. But once we start that, it'll define the next year of Sunday mornings. So uh, uh, that's I'm, I'm a little reticent to ch- to chew that because once I choose it, then we're then we're there for a while. But you know, when we did Matthew verse by verse a couple years ago, I tell you, I felt like I learned more about the life of Christ then than I ever had before. And uh, and if we if we're going to tackle another gospel, it would make sense to tackle John because he's different from the other three. Um, so uh, um, thinking about that, that might be more long term. So um, anyway, email me uh, or you know catch me and have a conversation with me. Um, we're thinking about what's going to come after this. Um, do you know this? I, I think you probably do. Um, like I've mentioned it before. Why do I, why do we why do I try to announce ahead of time the sermon series that we're doing, or why do we do relatively short series when we can? I feel like those are often entrance ramps to church, entrance ramps to inviting people to church. And do you know this? I mentioned this a month ago. I think I'll mention it over and over again. 82% of people who are invited to church by someone they know say yes to that. Um, and so one of the reasons we pick a series is like it, it's, it seems to me like an easy way for you to bring that up in conversation with your coworkers or neighbors or that kind of thing. So we looked at the parable tools a month or so, a couple months ago. Let's take a look at them again because they will all work looking at this parable. Look for the surprise. All of these parables or, or, or most of these parables have a surprise ending where the listener 2,000 years ago would have expected one outcome and Jesus sort of forces them to look at reality a different way because he doesn't tell them what they're expecting to hear. And it's kind of hard for us sometimes to grasp that because 2,000 years later, we're used to looking at it the way Jesus intended. And it's hard for us to put ourselves in the the shoes of a farmer uh, who would have been going out and sitting on the side of a hill and listening to Jesus tell this story back then. What would the audience expect? Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? This parable has a definite good guy we're supposed to copy and a definite bad guy that that we're supposed to avoid his example. And it would have been a total surprise to the audience 2,000 years ago. And who is the audience? That's going to help you. And Luke here identifies the audience. We're in, back in Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. <laughs> Look at how he identifies the audience. Those who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. Uh, so how many of you are saying, oh, this parable's for me? Uh, the, and yet all of us at some point, I think, walk in that. You know, when we're not careful, you know, we, there, we, or we have our own little pet groups we like to look down on. So we've had a wide variety of audiences in looking at these 12 parables. Uh, at one point, Jesus spoke just or to the Pharisees when they were trying to trick him. Another time, an expert in the law. One time, he spoke a parable to one Pharisee named Simon. Another time, he gave a parable just to Peter. Uh, we've looked at several that were directed to the disciples. Rarely have we seen parables that were directed to a crowd. Uh, the parables weren't usually for the mass consumption. They were more for a smaller group. But here, it's a specific target audience, people who were prideful. And then the parable is pretty much a tale of two prayers. The last two parables we looked at last week and the week before were all about prayer. We had one version of the Lord's Prayer, and then we had one last week on the necessity of persistence in prayer. And now we're going to see Jesus tell a story of two guys praying, and one's, one does it right and one does it wrong. So look at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Going to the temple to pray 
is something that we wouldn't typically practice today. Uh, you might see a uh, you might see the scene in a movie where a guy's troubled and he's walking downtown and he'll go into a like a Catholic church that's open late at night and, and, and pray for guidance there. That's probably the closest we can get to that. But the Jews 2,000 years ago believed that going into their temple made their prayers have more impact, that they were more powerful and effective if they actually went up to the temple to pray. So it would be very common for Jewish people of, of this day to go into the temple to, to pray, where you would probably feel like you could pray, you know, wherever, at your kitchen or your living room or on the back porch, or, or, and it would be just as effective. Then the two main characters here are a Pharisee and a tax collector, and this is one of those things that we, we really need to kind of take ourselves back in time if we can in order to get it. It's hard for us to grasp how respected the Pharisees were in their own day. We're so used to them being the bad guys in the parables that Jesus told. We're so used to them being the ones that harassed Jesus and f accused him falsely and, and took him to the Romans to be executed that we, we are so much in the habit of seeing the Pharisees as the bad guys that it's, we need to suspend that a little bit to recognize how respected they were in their day. They were worthy of respect in their day for a lot of reasons. The Pharisees had seen the history of Israel. They had seen Israel penalized for disobedience. Uh, they'd seen God's judgment come because of their idolatry and their, their Sabbath breaking and, and just turning away from, from God's command. And they'd seen the Assyrians and the Babylonians come in and take them away into exile. And they were personally committed that they would live lives in a way that would make it hard for that kind of stuff to happen again. And they were people who put their lives where their mouths were. Uh, now, Jesus also confronted some hypocrisy among the Pharisees. They, they, a lot of what they did, they did for show. But when they started off, they were people of the book. They were committed to reading the law and doing what it said and, and actually doing it, not just talking about it. They were respected teachers. They were committed to purity, tithing, and doctrine. We're, we, all those things are good things. They believed in an afterlife and a judgment. Even we're talking about before the New Testament was written. They read the Old Testament scriptures. And, and believed in, in judgment and afterlife. And so these were like the top, the most respected members of their society. And on the total opposite end, we have tax collectors. And again, I think we might not have any great love for tax collectors, but we don't hate them like the Jews did in the first century. Uh, you would probably see tax collectors as like civil service drones with their hand in your pocket, and you wouldn't have any great love for their work or the work that they do. But the tax collectors of Jesus' day were much more worthy of hatred than the tax collectors of our day. And, and, and I'm not, don't misunderstand how I said that. They, were, they earned it. They were loathsome. And, and how so? They were collaborators. They collaborated with the Romans. Remember, Palestine was occupied by the Roman Empire back then. And so if you want to find a comparison, I've talked about this a few months ago. If you want to find a comparison with tax collectors, go back to a movie of set in World War II where the Nazis occupy conquered territory. How did the locals feel about their own kind who collaborated with the Nazis and made it easier to oppress them? That's what these tax collectors are to the Jews of the first century. They're cooperating with the Roman occupation government in order to squeeze taxes out of the Jewish people. Uh, they're mixing with Gentiles. The Romans obviously are Gentiles, so they're going to be ceremonially unclean. And then they're like backwards Robin Hood. 
They abused their own people for their own financial gain. The Romans used this system called tax farming, where a guy who was wealthy enough could sort of buy a district or a region from the Romans, and what he would do is he'd pay them the attacks the Romans expected to get out of his own pocket. And what would he earn for that? The right to collect taxes from all the people in the region. And what amount? Whatever he could squeeze. And it was in his interest to squeeze as much as he could, and he had the power of the Roman army behind him to squeeze as much as he could. And so this is a guy who oppressed and abused and, and essentially robbed from his own people in order to feather his own nest. And so they were very wealthy oftentimes and, and very, very much hated uh, by their own people. And again, this is not like the IRS agents that you might con, con deal with today. These are, these are more loathsome than that. And I think you need to get, get that in order to understand the contrast of this parable. You got the Pharisee who was well-respected back then, although not by readers of the Bible 2,000 years later so much, and, and tax collectors who are at the bottom and of their society and on merit. They deserve, to be, um, they deserve to be there based on their behavior. So the, the point I want to make there is the people you're tempted to scorn, they probably deserve it too. But that's no excuse. And, and we are just as far off from seeing this as Jesus would have us to see it if we say, well, you know, that person's just not worthy of forgiveness. That person's just not, just not entitled um, to, to have a place. Let's go back to the parable. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. You look at that prayer and just think, God sure is lucky to have a guy like this on his team, don't you think? And that seems to be what his attitude in the prayer, right? And yeah, I know this congregation well enough to know that I can't picture anybody saying, I mean, I just think about the arrogance of, of this guy. He's not only proud he's not like all those bad guys out there, but he's proud he's not like this bad guy right here standing next to him, you know, which strikes me as the height of arrogance. And, you know, I can't really picture anyone in this room saying, thank God I'm not like the tax collector. I'll tell you what is easier to picture. I can picture people I know and love saying, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. And that, that hits a little closer to home for me. And yet the attitude's just as far off, is it not? Um, if I am prideful of my own approach to God and scornful of yours, then whatever angle I'm coming from, um, I'm still out of bounds, I would, say, I would think. Pharisee did a lot of things right, a lot of things worthy of celebration. Fasting, tithing, those are good things. Abstaining from robbery and adultery and evil doing and, and tax collecting, those are all things that he should be glad of. But his prayer is like a hymn, it's like a prayer, a hymn of praise to himself, right? Thank you, God, for doing such a great job of making me. Uh, and uh, you made me so wonderful that uh, I got all these things now that I'm able to give to you. That's what the Pharisee did wrong. He prayed about himself. He did not pray about God's glory, and he relied on his own righteousness. And because of that, he was, had a scornful attitude towards other people, even other people in his own congregation. These guys were at the temple together when he, when he displayed this scorn. Pharisee did not follow the model that Jesus gave us for prayer. Let's take a quick look back at that to see what the model is. How would Jesus pray? 
our prayer should be to your Father. And we need to recognize that the good things about us, even the good things in our character, are gifts from God. And so when I stand before God and say, well, God, I'm glad I'm like this, I'm glad I'm like that, you know, whatever, there is to, whatever there is praiseworthy or admirable in any of us, they're gifts from God, are they not? And, and then the, the things we possess, the things we enjoy, those, it's easy to recognize those as gifts from God. But the things that we do right, we tend to recognize those as you know, my victory. But that's a gift from God, too, the ability, the grace, and the ability to respond appropriately. We should pray about God's glory. You know, what, how's the Pharisee do that backwards? He glorifies himself, doesn't he? And then we should pray about our needs. You know, give us our daily bread, lead us not into temptation. Pharisee here apparently doesn't have any needs. He seems to have it all together, and so he's just kind of celebrating how, how good he is. That's the wrong prayer. Let's look at the right one, verse 13. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This reminds me of a prayer in Daniel where... Uh, in verse 9, or chapter 9, I haven't read this in a long time, but I found it this week. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. Uh, back to the tax collector. Notice his body language. He stands at a distance. He won't look up, and he beats his breast. Now, the first two of those, those are easy to see as the, the body language of somebody who's walking in humility. That last one, I guess, has changed over the last 2,000 years. That, that's not... When would we beat our breast when we're getting ready to swing through the jungle and trying to impress Jane, it seems? Uh, I, don't, I can't picture that being a symbol of humility. Um, that's not one, I guess it's one that's fallen out of fashion now. But 2,000 years ago, I guess that would have been a way of showing his unworthiness before God. They did a lot of things back then to show humility that we wouldn't do. Dressing in sackcloth was a common way in the Old Testament, putting ashes on their head. Um, I guess I've, I've, I've seen that on Ash Wednesday, but not a, not a real common way. So... When he's beating his breast, it's his way of saying, oh, God, I don't deserve to stand before you. What did the tax collector do right? He recognized his need. He doesn't stand before God knowing he's got it all together. He stands before God knowing he is unworthy. And he cried out to God for mercy. And then the best part of this parable, I think, is the conclusion where Jesus sums it all up for us and kind of lays it out for us theologically. Verse 14, I tell you that this man rather than the other, the tax collector rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice that word justified. We're talking about a key theological concept here, and what Jesus is showing us is this is a key to understanding the gospel. If, if there's something in you that feels like you're more worthy of God's grace and God's redemption than somebody else, inside your church or outside of your church, that betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. I bring nothing to the equation when God saves me. And so my, how can I explain why God chose to save me, why God chose to save you? I can't explain that. He did. He did because he did. Um, and yet, if there's something in me that thinks, well, I just deserved it more than him. He's bad. He deserves to stay bad. And he doesn't deserve God's forgiveness. I'm glad I'm not like him because God saved me because I somehow am more worthy. That betrays just a, a, a basic misconception about, about grace and the gospel. 
this is one of those concepts, humility, that's just all over the Bible. There's no way to escape it. Luke has a lot of reversal of fortune stories, uh, like the older brother and the younger brother and the prodigal son story, and, and he has other stories like that. We had a trading places story a few weeks ago. Let's uh, read a couple verses of, uh, that Luke included. After the angel appeared to Mary, Mary composed a song that included passages on humility. Uh, and this is in Luke chapter 1. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. She's talking about God. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And then Luke 14, 11 says exactly the same passage that Jesus used to finish this parable. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Does that strike you as strange? that Jesus would say the same thing over and over again. That doesn't strike me as strange. I repeat myself all the time. Does it strike you as strange that Luke would include the same quote just four chapters away? That, to me, indicates that this was an important concept, that the Holy Spirit thought it was important to, to impress upon Luke, that Luke thought it was important to impress upon his readers. I think it's important for us to impress it on ourselves. How can you tell if you've got a problem with this? You know, we talked about it at the beginning. You know, the, the more prideful people tend to think, eh, this isn't about me. Um, and the more humble people are going to be eager. Um, there are some little clues where I think you can tell if this is, uh, whether it's overt or not. Some little clues I think you can see if it's, a, if it's troubling you. Are you easily offended? Are you willing, overly willing to judge? Are you unwilling to forgive? Are you close to correction? None of us really think uh, embrace and enjoy correction, but is it near impossible to correct you? Because uh, unteachability is a really key hallmark of prideful behavior. You know, we all know the Bible tells us that we're supposed to take the form of a servant. If we want to be Christ-like, we want to serve each other, right? And so many of us would, have cho would choose the life of a servant. But here's a test. How do you feel when somebody treats you like a servant? And that's when I think sometimes we get the, the real fruit comes out. Because I, I, I can vividly remember this. Like, I chose to serve you. I chose to be your servant. But I didn't choose to let you treat me like a servant. That's a whole other thing. And, and I feel like we can see the real attitudes coming out then. What to do about it? If, you've, if you identify this, I mean, is it enough to go home and say, well, I, I don't want to be so prideful. I want to be more humble. How can you walk in it? Um, I read a list. I don't have it to post for you. I, I found it too late. Uh, just a list of steps to walk in humility. If you want these later, I can make them available to you because I'm going to read it pretty fast. Appreciate your talents. Now, that seems kind of backwards if you're trying to be humble, but recognize that the abilities you have are gifts from God, that you actually do have gifts and that God gave them to you. And recognizing the source, I think, is a humble act. Number two, understand your limitations. Number three, recognize your own faults. Number four, stop comparing. That'll, that's, that will promote prideful behavior. Number five, Appreciate the talents and qualities of others. Six, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Um, that'll, be, that'll paralyze you. Um, you gotta be able to make mistakes and then you know, it takes a humble person to admit them, right? Uh, number seven, don't be afraid to defer to others' judgment. Number eight, rejuvenate your sense of wonder. That one just seems kind of like fun to me. Um, number nine, seek guidance. Contemplate moral texts and proverbs about humility. We're gonna do that in just a minute. Pray for it, meditate on it. Do whatever it takes to get the attention off yourself. Number 10, think about yourself under different circumstances. You know, we've all heard the old cliche there, before the grace go I, but most of us don't really believe it. When you see the guy living in abject poverty, we want to think the right things, 
But down deep, don't we really believe that there's something different in you that makes you more worthy of the situation that you have and something wrong in him that makes him, where he somehow earned his situation? And then uh, number 11, help others. A big part of being humble is respecting other people, and part of respecting, is to, is respecting them is to help them. A couple warnings about this. When we hear a message about humility, sometimes it's tempting to, be, to, to pretend, to act more humble than we really are because other people like that. You know, people like it when you act humble, and so maybe we just want to earn the praise, get the acknowledgement of acting like a humble person without really having it down deep. Uh, two problems with that, people will see right through it most of the time, but even if, uh, you know, if you fool some of the people some of the time, the internal benefits of humility aren't there, the contentment uh, and, and other things that come from walking in humility, you just don't get those. And the other thing is, sometimes people mistake obsequious behavior for true humility. Uh, whenever I use the word obsequious in class, I have to follow it up, suck up uh, behavior. Uh, that's something I think people understand today. The Eddie Haskell stuff for people my age. The, uh, oh, Mrs. Cleveland, what a lovely dress you're wearing. You know, the, the kind of uh, um, kissing up to somebody in order to uh, earn their favor, that's not true humility. That's manipulation. So, yeah, don't, don't, don't make the mistake of walking down that path. Humility is all over the New Testament. We're going to finish with a few passages on humility. In fact, I'm going to read some by Paul, by James, and by Peter, and, and we've seen them in the Gospel. So it seems to me like it's hard to find a New Testament writer who didn't include a key text about humility in his writings. Romans 12:3 says this, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Philippians 2 3 and 4 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I, I did a typo on this. This next one's not James. It's 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6. I skipped over the James quote because it's, it's just a quote from Proverbs, just like you see here in uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter, um, we did that verse by verse a, a couple years ago. Maybe you recall at the very end, Peter goes through this list of people like parents act like this, children act like this, servants act like this, masters act like this. And then he concludes this way. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Let's pray. Lord, help us to do this. Lord, help us to understand it, first of all. Help us to understand how, how it applies to us. For those of us that have been you know, sort of playing at humility but not really living it, uh, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to, uh, to, uh, to see you differently and to see others differently and see ourselves differently. Um, Lord, I ask again that you'd bless our moms, uh, the ones that are here and the ones that we'll see later. Uh, God, I ask that you would just uh, um, show us opportunities to... Uh, to show appreciation to them. And Lord, I, I think about Walter's prayer this morning. For those in the room that are burdened for their moms and concerned for their moms, God, I ask that you would just uh, um, build our faith, Lord, by showing us uh, how we can help and, and, Lord, by showing us changes. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for meeting with us this morning. Help us to understand uh, what you're teaching us, Lord, and help us to walk in it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.